This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam! I'm telling you, it's time to party! Welcome back to this episode of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined for episode 269 of the show by Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood of Over the Monster. Gentlemen, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I am back in my own apartment sleeping in my own bed. It just feels great. I am ready to podcast. How are you, Bob? I feel that. I'm reading spring training news and going to watch a game in a day or two where people are throwing baseballs to each other, and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to spring forward out of daylight savings. Things are looking up, so let's do this. Yeah. How's your How's your potting form, Bob? Are you in the best shape of your life? No. <laughs> i'm in terrible shape but we're gonna change that starting uh tomorrow yeah we'll we'll all get in the best shape of our lives uh soon uh when it comes to potting certainly not in real life for me but um anyhow we've got a lot to talk about on today's show we have some real spring training news that we're gonna get to um we're gonna talk all about um the interview uh, that John Henry did with Jen McCaffrey, um, which was pretty bad. 
Uh, we'll talk about some polls that came out over at The Athletic in regards to the Red Sox. So we have a lot of stuff going on here. Um, Keaton, you're, you're newly back from your globe-trotting adventures. Uh, how was the Netherlands? It was great, man. I had a wonderful time. I talked to a wonderful gentleman who uh, blogs about the Netherlands Professional League there, kind of about um, the following of Major League Baseball, uh, baseball in general, and the World Baseball Classic. So we do a little article piece there. Um, and it was just uh, just fun to be in a place that I had never been before. So it was, that was fun. Awesome. And Bob, how are things in Braintree? <laughs> Not bad. Not bad hanging in there. I'm ready to go. Um, I don't have anything to report, so I haven't been to Europe lately, and um, I'm just kind of plugging along. Well, we do have some big news, uh, Bob, that yeah. you know, if, if people want to see us in person, they can come find us at the Kowloon uh, in right. Saugus tomorrow, where we're going to be getting lunch together. So I didn't want to give away too much, and I made a, a huge faux pas today where I got uh, Chinese food for dinner. Oh, no. And totally forgot <laughs> about the Chinese food that I'm having for lunch tomorrow. So um, we'll just leave it at that. It might be a tough weekend. <laughs> and I this confirms that I'm not in the best shape of my life. But again, starting Friday, Saturday, somewhere around there, we're going to turn it around. Well, on the plus side, um, having Chinese food twice in a row in China is just simply called having food. <laughs> <laughs> real good yep all right so we do have real baseball to talk about we have our very first lineup of the year out so i think that that's what we're going to lead off with uh and speaking of leading off jaron duran is leading off tomorrow's game against the northeastern huskies winners of uh the bean pot for both men and women this year um Rafael Devers hitting second, kike hernandez hitting third masataki yoshida in the cleanup spot alex verdugo uh, Jorge Alfaro, Tristan Casas, and Manuel Valdez, and Steven Scott. Any thoughts on the first lineup of the year? Glad Jorge Alfaro's in there. He's got everything cleared away and getting at bats, and I know that he's going to be leaving pretty soon, so that's interesting. They must, you know, want to get him caught up, but other than that, no. I, I'm not going to read into anything um, as they play a college team tomorrow. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully we'll be able to, to watch some of this game together uh, tomorrow at, yes. at the at the bar. So uh, we'll be able to see it. One of the things I'm looking for here is uh, defense. I want to see if Jaron Duran's jumps actually have gotten better, like Alex Cora says. I want to see what Kike looks like at shortstop. I know I'm not going to be able to tell that much, but, you know, at least to, to get a look at it, I want to see what Valdez looks like at second base and how Steven Scott handles catcher. So th there's kind of a lot of interesting things here. Alfaro is going to be playing DH tomorrow. So um, I don't know. Just it's cool finally to start seeing lineups come out again. Like as much negativity as there has been around this team and, you know, we can – pick nits all we want with with how things have been going but like spring is here and baseball is being played tomorrow so all is yeah. good Re reading a lineup is great for exactly what you just said and as i look at it a second time should we read even one percent into yoshida not in the leadoff spot 
when he has said that he does not like to hit leadoff. Yes, you should read a thousand percent into it. Okay. Overreaction central. All right. <laughs> Thank you. There we go. Yeah, we're we're keeping this pod on on the level um, to start off with. But yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think one of the things we theorized last time was that Yoshida could get some time in the cleanup spot or in the third spot uh, against lefties. We thought maybe he'd lead off against righties, but you know we'll see. We'll see what what ends up happening with this. But as you guys mentioned, a bunch of these guys are going to be going to play for their WBC teams uh, later on. So there's going to be a whole lot of extra at-bats for guys going around this spring. But one of the guys in this lineup is first baseman Tristan Casas, who is fully healthy and rearing to go. There was a really interesting story that um, we talked about before we got on the air today uh, by Chris Cotillo about um, some of Casas's teammates' reactions, particularly the veterans, to... Uh, some of his pregame habits that he had last year. Um, so Casas, obviously a, a pretty eccentric guy. Um, you know, before he made his debut, he was shirtless, sunbathing in the field, uh, which is one of his routines. Apparently, he likes to sleep uh, in the clubhouse, like not in the sleeping room that they do have at Fenway Park, but apparently just like on the floor of the clubhouse with a towel. Um, and uh, we we also saw the Julian McWilliams tweet of him, um, you know, with coloring his nails and doing all sorts of stuff. So it just seems like Casas is is an eccentric dude. He's very much his own person. Um, but some of the veterans didn't appreciate this very much. So Keaton, I know that when you read the story, you had kind of a strong reaction to it. But one of the things that you mentioned was. You liked some of the quotes uh, that Casas had in the story. So do you want to kind of hit on that a little bit to begin the conversation? Yeah. Um, a lot of his, his quotes were, you know, um, I guess, so when you brought it up, I hadn't read it yet. And uh, that was my initial comments were not having read it. Uh, but I was assuming it was going to be something similar to what was coming out of Atlanta with um, like uh, Acuna rubbing some of the vets the wrong way with just having like a lot of fun playing the game. Um, not having any context that I had. It was specifically to do with like his pregame uh, like routine. So I was curious um, just what his comments were and how, kind of how he took it. Um, and it was a mixture of him basically saying like um, – he has his routine and he has his personality and he's not going to change who he is because, uh, you know, some guys get rubbed the wrong way, but he's also not discrediting the things that veterans say to him. And when a guy comes to him and gives him feedback, he takes it seriously. Uh, and he adjusts how he's presenting himself and how he's, what he's, his actions. Um, so he's not pissing everybody off because, He's still a young guy making his way in the league. Um, but he's, he also is doing it in a way that still is kind of like true to himself and his personality and letting himself kind of stay true. But the thing that really got to me was uh, that I liked was he basically said he only clashed with guys when he felt like he was being disrespected and just called out to be called out with no real intent behind it. And I love that he was sticking up for himself there and kind of punching back. 
But also at the same time, when he's like, when guys came to me and had actual feedback, I listened. And when it came from a good place, I like that. I think that's a great guy to have in the clubhouse. And I, I don't think it's going to take him that long to be one of the leaders there and kind of doing the same thing with all the young guys that are going to come up behind him. So I really liked his comments. And to me, they showed kind of basically the the poise and budding leadership um, that we kind of hope all of the, the top young talent on the team has. So I was really impressed. I liked it. What were your takes on it, Bob? I don't disagree with what Keaton said and that I thought that his quotes came off really well and that he took it as a learning experience, um, that he did stand up for himself. If he thought someone was being disrespectful, that he would kind of punch back a little bit. I totally agree with that. I've seen kind of some comments about people saying, you know, like, just let him be the person that he is. But, you know, you have to understand that there is a veteran presence in the clubhouse. There's a certain culture and there is a way that teams do things. And I know they were losing last year, but you have a long-term manager, you have veterans that are there, and, you know, he's showing up, and he's doing naked yoga, and he's taking naps in front of the locker, and people are walking over him and things like that, and I'm sure there was a, listen, that's not how we do things around here, we're going to do things this way, I'm sure some people didn't go about that the right way, and some of those players might be gone. We don't know which of those players they are. There's a lot of, you know, it's going to be anonymous sources with this, and we're not going to probably find out who that is. But, um, you know, I don't know. I it, It's the same in really any work culture. If someone was taking naps in the break room during their 30-minute break, and we had to step over him at my in my office, I'd say, you know, that's not really the way that we do things around here. Um, so, I think that there was a culture, and I think that, you know, any cultures from past generations i'm not saying like any of the hazing that went on or the way that baseball culture was a long time ago like that should have evolved but there still has to be some sort of ground rules and if the veterans just thought that things went were a little too chaotic with that then i understand that view as well and i don't think that i think that there are two sides to this that can both be true yeah, I tend to agree with that that take. Um, I like both of the things that you guys said, but, you know, particularly, it, it doesn't really bother me, the uh, routines, but there is something to the idea of the locker room being, you know, this shared space um, that, you know, everybody has to kind of live in, and uh, there's an etiquette to it as well, and, uh, you know, having... <laughs> having to be walked over and sleeping in the middle of it, especially when you're the size of Tristan Casas, uh, that, that can be inconvenient and that would probably annoy me too. So I get that some of the veterans were trying to, you know, tell him how to go about his business, uh, in a little bit of a different way. So I, I think that that's good, but I also do like the idea that he did, uh, stand up for himself, um, there's, thank God Jonathan Papelbon's not on this team. I imagine that there would have already been a physical confrontation uh, had that been the case. I was thinking but, of um, Pedroia, too. I don't know why. I just started <laughs> laughing at the thought of Dustin Pedroia seeing that going on and just completely <laughs> flipping out on a guy that's a foot taller than him. I was say, coming up to pass his belt, yelling at <laughs> right. him to wake up. But, or or Julian Tavares being on this team and just joining in with the naked yoga with Tristan Casas. 
giving each other rub downs. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think he's going to be an interesting guy. I do think I get why people would be annoyed by it though, because like Costas has proven absolutely nothing in this game. And I think one of the, the old adages with baseball is you kind of have to like prove yourself a little bit in order to get that space, uh, to be yourself. But I know that the game is changing in some regards in that way. And I know that like specifically looking at the clubhouse culture of the Boston Bruins, I mean, that was a huge thing that was changed when Zidane Char came over to the team and uh, with Bergeron too, was like, they just don't call players rookies. They call them first year players. There's no carrying the bags. There's, you know, everybody's sort of treated equally in it. That's been a really successful thing. Uh, for the Bruins culture. So if they're trying to institute something like that in baseball, I think that that's a good thing. But I think we all also need to realize baseball is probably one of the oldest uh, and most conservative cultures uh, of, of any of the major sports. So, you know, if baseball is lagging behind in that regard, I don't think that would surprise me at all. Yeah. I think to, to Bob's point, though, about the the, the clubhouse culture especially in a season that isn't living up to expectations when everybody's already kind of pissed and on pins and needles it doesn't take much to disrupt the whole environment and so you can easily see how guys are already like annoyed with the performance of the team and then the top prospect comes up and is just sunbathing out in the outfield and people are like does this guy understand where we are right now like yeah <laughs> So right. yeah, I totally get see it. How some might think that it's making a mockery. Yeah. And then them being frustrated. But I think um, for the most part, how it was handled where veterans came to him to basically explain that. And he was very receptive to that. I think that was kind of how it should have gone. Yeah. I agree with that. Absolutely. All right. Anything more on, on Casas before we move on? I would just say that it, this is a phenomenal article from Chris Cotillo at Mass Live. So it's a great read. It has a ton of quotes that are in there. And uh, it's something that like I had seen alluded to between uh, it being off-putting last year. And, you know, a couple writers alluded to it but didn't go in-depth. And Cotillo did a great job with that. So it's a, uh, you know, a great read in my opinion. All right. Give him the Pulitzer. Um, Brian Bayo is dealing with some forearm soreness. Uh, he was shut down for a few days, but has begun throwing again. He's throwing off flat ground. I believe he threw off the mound today or tomorrow for the first time. Can't remember which. Um, but let's go to you first with this one, Bob. Any concern here with Brian Bayo? Yeah, I am always concerned with forearm soreness. And... I'm glad that he threw off flat ground and I'm glad that they're saying that he's not behind for opening day, but you know, this is, this is the guy that I chose to write, you know, 1500 words about last week before anyone else. Cause I was most excited, uh, about his, um, you know, just hopefully taking the leap this season and for him to have forearm soreness, which is, you know, the precursor to Tommy John uh, as the first news note that I read this year. Yeah, I was concerned. Um, they seem to be less concerned. He's not being 
truly shut down, but until he's out there in a game and getting through a couple of innings, I'm going to have that in the back of my head. Yeah, I agree. It's a bit concerning. Uh, the projections are actually pretty nice to Bayo as really like a, you know, barely a second year player here. He, he passed the rookie innings by seven, seven and a third innings last year. But, you know, they haven't projected based on, you know, who you look at. But ATC, which compiles a bunch of others, has him for a 4.12 ERA. Um, striking out almost a batter per inning. So some pretty good numbers there. Uh, Keaton, I know you're also very excited about Bayo, and, and you kind of theorized that he's somebody they might keep down in AAA. Um, do you think that that is more likely now that he has been dealing with the injury concern and you know they might end up having to be a little bit more conservative with him this spring? Yeah, especially if he, you know, well, I mean, he already is having a <clears throat> a slower ramp up. Um, but if he's not able to get to, I mean, really kind of like relatively soon, um, being able to, to go through like a, a regular spring training, um, then he's going to need to kind of build up somewhere else. So it's probably, you know, extended spring training into the minors um, until – there's an opening on the major league roster for him to slide into. So, yeah, I think it seems more likely that way unless he <laughs> really is not um, all that bothered by it and is able to pick up throwing um, off of a mound sooner. And kind of like Bob said, I'm just I'm going to be, until we see him in game action, I'm just be really worried about it. And uh, whatever his first innings are in spring, I'm going to be glued to them. I want to see his velocity. I want to see his movement and everything. And um, really just going to be focused in on him for the majority of the spring. Because, uh, man, it looked like he was really primed for something special this season. And this was uh, probably the most bummer news we could have gotten here coming into spring training. Um I don't think, you know, for all of the question marks that the uh, the rotation has in terms of health, I don't think Bayo was actually on anybody's radar. Uh, I think we, we all kind of mentioned the usual suspects elsewhere. Really, the only concern was like, well, he's still kind of young, so we don't really know what we're going to get out of him. But he's working with Pedro, and he's talented as shit. So, you know, it's probably going to be a fun season. But no one was like... He's probably going to break because that's what pitchers do. So, yeah, this sucks. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that, Keaton, because I was shocked how late into the season they continued to let him start games into October and throw 153 innings, but he was still pumping 97. He was averaging 97-plus in that game on Sunday night against the Yankees late in the season when he threw six innings, Yeah, you know, when – judge was going for 62 um you know that was a that was a a big game at least for the yankees on sunday night baseball and he pitched great and he was throwing really hard and i was like damn he's keeping his velocity past the 150 inning threshold that gave me confidence that he could even throw 170 because you know you they'll add 20 percent oftentimes to what you've thrown before you know maybe not expecting that but that would be the upside of it um 
So I was surprised by it as it was going on, but then I was thinking, you know, well, they must see something. They must see that he's not um, any weaker than he was in July, August. In fact, his velocity was as high as it had been in the last couple of starts. And the other thing, too, that I'm now worried about, just because we've seen how it can snowball with a guy like Sale, but I... And, and really, this is kind of like the worst case scenario here, and just kind of projecting that being the case. But if he needs Tommy John surgery, I just hope he gets it, and the team doesn't try and dick around with like platelet injections or rest or whatever else, because it just it never works, well, and they still end up needing it. Wait a second, a, Keaton. Slow down here. Slow I know, way down. You're going way where, too far. I know. You're already but taking this to a dark place, man. I'm, I, I, I need to stop you from taking it to this fair. place. Okay? That's fair. All right, can I take it to a different place that's less dark? Um, sure. Do you think that they are hesitating to take the Braves approach? They want to extend their rookies um, to buy out arbitration and go a year or two years beyond free agency. Are they going to be more hesitant to do that? I mean, I was hoping to see it before the season started with Bayo and potentially Cassis forearm pain maybe they hold off i don't think they should hold off if anything it it makes a guy like bayo more likely to take a deal like that at a time like this and the the thing that i was just gonna say while i was kind of tamping down uh keaton's doom and gloom um about this and keaton i i totally get that that idea because i remember having those conversations with you about how frustrated we were with yeah. how they screwed up the Chris Sale thing. But, like, let's not forget, this could be muscular. This could be just a flexor mass strain or something like that on the forearm that's just a couple days, no big deal. But I think that one of the things that we're going to know with this is specifically this is going to be one of the first big tests that Cora faces this year. Um, you know, the the benefit of Cora is that he's really good at dealing with his players Cora needs to have that honest heart-to-heart with Bayo, and Bayo needs to really communicate with Cora honestly about how he's feeling physically. And they need to really nip this thing in the bud right away, you know, give him the time off that he needs to rest and heal, and, you know, essentially treat this the right way. Um, and I know that a guy like Bayo being young and wanting to prove himself and wanting to have that breakout season is probably going to be anxious to get back on the mound as soon as possible. So I think it's going to be a real test of Cora's managerial skills to be able to get that honest feedback from from Brian Bale. The other guy who's kind of ramping things up a little slow, another member of the rotation is Garrett Whitlock, um, who had off-season hip surgery on his right hip. He appears on track for opening day. Uh, are either of you two gentlemen concerned at all? With Whitlock's off-season hip surgery and him making that transition uh, to the rotation, um, I'm less concerned there. I think that they are just building him up slowly. Um, I do. Th- I you know, Chad Jennings wrote in the Athletic. I think it was today, and I thought he encapsulated it perfectly in that. They have seven pitchers for five spots, and it's really hard to figure out whether that is a nice to have. You know, are they uh, a nice problem to have? Right, you got that many pitchers for that many spots because they might have like two, 
<laughs> because of just all of the risk that's there. I mean, we just talked about Bayo, who already has some forearm pain. You're talking about Whitlock is coming off hip surgery. You're talking about Sale, who's coming off everything. You're talking about Paxton, who hasn't thrown in four years. And then you've got uh, Nick Pavetta, who has had a long bout with COVID and is already behind, it sounds like. You know, he might be, you know, might be ready for opening day, it sounds like. So you add all of that. Um, and then we're going to talk about Tanner Houck in a little bit. And he's coming off back surgery but he has a 3.02 career ERA and I'm sure we'll talk about what role we envision for him but do they have seven pitchers do they have two or three that are going to be ready for opening day somehow Corey Kluber seems like the most sure thing out of everybody <laughs> which if we said that a year ago wouldn't make any sense but he did make all of his starts last year so it's so hard to know is it a nice problem to have? If all of these guys are there in a month, it's a nice problem to have. But I'd be willing to bet that they're not all ready to go for opening day. Even if they are, and I don't feel like the Red Sox are in that bad of a spot, though. Because you still have Cutter Crawford and Josh Binkowski and Brandon Walter and like all this reasonably good upper minors depth. And, and I agree with you, but like... The most important thing to me is not that all of these guys are ready and lined up on opening day. It's that these guys pitch most of the innings in 2023, you know, and and however they get to that, like if these guys trickle in through March and April and maybe even May, um, but still end up pitching the bulk of the innings, I'm happy with that. I just want them to do right by all these guys and not rush anybody. I, I don't disagree with that. It's just so hard to, like, saying I think these five pitchers are going to be in the rotation on opening day. I would It's an impossible thing to do right now. Yeah, I agree with that. How do you think about this rotation, Keaton? Yeah, I, I mean, talking about the just the impossibility of trying to name you know, who the five are going to be, especially when six of them are hurt right now. So, I mean, it is going to be interesting to see. I mean, we kind of have a, an understanding of who it's probably going to be. But um, basically, as soon as everybody re- reported to camp, people started getting sore and getting dings. And um, apparently, Pavetta's thing was more of an illness than actually being hurt, which is great news considering um, everything else that's going on with the starters. But, yeah, I think... They have depth, which they haven't had before, but it's, I don't know how reliable it is, but it's there. So, I mean, it, it makes you feel a little bit reassured. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I wonder if, um, you know, it, since they're moving to the pitch clock this year and pitchers presumably aren't going to be able to rear back and throw quite as hard as before, if we'll start seeing a, a little bit of a turn back towards pitchers, starting pitchers, particularly throwing more innings, especially with the, you know, 13 pitcher limit uh, on the 26 man rosters and all that stuff. I wonder if, uh, you know, maybe not having the pressure to throw as hard every pitch will end up being better for these guys uh, long term. But, you know, obviously that's kind of in the weeds and something that we're not going to know for 
for quite a while, but something I think about for sure. They also limited uh, when position players can come in and pitch to eight runs or more. So I feel like they're trying to sneak in some small rules to make the starting pitchers go longer. Who knows if they'll ever bring in that DH rule where the Otani rule where the DH would have to leave at the same time as the pitcher or whatever it was to try to keep the starter in for longer, but that would be a drastic move. They've made enough drastic rule changes, but, um, you know, capping it at 13, changing the position players pitching, they're minor moves that could be towards trying to get back towards that and avoiding openers. Yeah, Is that be- a lead of eight runs or more? I think the lead of six or eight or more if you're losing but I don't have it in front of me. Oh, yeah. Or extra innings. Yeah. So I, <laughs> the way you said that, my mind immediately went to like a mercy rule of when you have a position player and he gives up eight runs, then you just cut it off. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I probably conveyed it terribly. No, then I, like, I thought about it and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I definitely wouldn't hate seeing more pitchers get past that 200 innings pitch threshold, which... You know, it used to be, I feel like when we were kids, it was like 240, 250, and then it was 220, and then last year, the only guy to get past 220 was Sandy Alcantara, uh, or Alcantara, and, um, you know, just just getting guys to break 200 innings feels rare. In fact, just breaking 180 innings for a starting pitcher feels rare these days, so anything to get back to that workhorse starter uh, would be Kind of a nice thing, I think. Yep, I'm on board for that. All right, uh, Red Sox did make a roster move. They put uh, Story on the 60-day IL and brought back old friend Yu Chang on a one-year deal. Um, It seems like he could, in fact, make this team. He's on the roster now, which Nico Goodrum is not. Um, After being DFA'd in November, you know, he's re-signed, um, but Mondesi looks like he might start the year on the IL as well. Do you think that they will go with Chang uh, or or Goodrum? Um, I assume that if they went with Goodrum, they'd just, you know, DFA Chang again. But there seems to be some sort of clear preference for Chang or, you know, I assume they, they wouldn't have done this. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this roster spot, Keaton? Yeah, um, and it's kind of interesting. Um, I it feels like just maybe a depth move. I mean, Goodrum has options left, so um, they can kind of move him about. Of course, Chang does not. So as you mentioned, for him to um, he's got to make the roster or he gets DFA'd again. So um, it just kind of feels like another depth move in and bringing a guy back. Um, I would have preferred them to go another route, but, um, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I would have preferred Christian Arroyo to be that, that infielder on the bench. Um, but they love Christian Arroyo and he's gonna, he's gonna start and play a whole lot. Uh, at least until the other guys you mentioned there, Montessin story are healthy. So, um, they feel pretty confident rolling Arroyo out there every day. So then that move was just kind of to backfill that uh, infield depth role on the bench. And uh, because Goodrum has the options, uh, they can keep him stashed 
for a while. So um, it just kind of feels like they just uh, brought back Chang just to fill that role because they had a spot and we're like, hey, we know that guy. Um, <laughs> doesn't seem all that exciting to me. Probably won't hang around super long, but he's here. Yeah, they're clearly comfortable with some aspect of his defense for sure. Um, Bob, why Chang and not Elvis Andrews or Jose Iglesias or some other solution that, you know, seems to be more impactful? I have no idea. And they, I think Andrews signed for $3 million with the White Sox like a day or so. To play second base too. The... Right. And I, it, it just seemed like a really good fit in the same way that Kenley Jansen seemed like a really good fit, and they have seven, eight million left under the competitive balance tax. So that'd still give you four to play with if you had to make a trade or, you know, whatever other moves that they would have to make later in the year. You wouldn't be up against it because I don't think they're going to go past that this year. So I can't answer that with Andrus or Iglesias. I mean, I could still see Iglesias still unsigned, right? Yeah. Still out there. Okay. I could still see that happening. Um, why Chang? I think it's because he's a backup at every position. He's been, he's played 58 games at first, 53 at second, 56 at third, and 35 at short. So obviously he has experience and there are, there's all the risks that we've talked about and he can be probably a competent defensive backup at all four positions, which has some value because it's not uh, value with the bat. I heard the reason why they didn't go out and get Andrews is because he has a clause in his contract that if he sees another player on the team doing naked yoga, that he immediately gets a $10 million bonus. An escalator, if you will. I'm wondering where that was going. He doesn't have a contract. Well, he does now. He signed. Fair. All right. Well, that didn't go well. Um, Tanner Houck, <laughs> who appears to be one of the odd men out in the rotation, is coming off back surgery, as Bob mentioned, um, but appears healthy now. He had a discectomy in his back. Um, Cora says he wants Tanner Houck to throw a lot of innings. Um, Bob, what role do you believe Tanner Houck will be throwing a lot of innings in uh, this year? So I, I'm totally on board with them starting the season as a starter and just working back from there because it's a lot easier than doing the opposite. Um, and with what we just talked about, if there are only three or four of these starters ready for opening day, maybe he's in the rotation for a month and then moves to that swing roll. But I think the majority of the innings that he will throw will be in relief, um, just in high leverage if the starter goes out or piggybacking or sixth, seventh. Um, and you know, like when help comes in and he's going, he can throw three innings and throw less than 30 pitches and just have a dominant outing like that and then take two days off. And I, I just think Cora likes him in that role, but I also agree with stretching him out to start in case three of the things that we talked about goes wrong. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Keaton, how how do you see his role this year? I whether I mean, yeah, I mean, whether it's as kind of like the Andrew Miller super reliever or as a, a pinch starter here and there. I think 
it makes sense. Um, and I like Cora's plan of wanting to get him as many innings as possible. However, that ends up um, falling and keeping him stretched out. I hated it last year, but that was because the bullpen was really bad last year and they didn't really have any high leverage options. And both of their high leverage options, they were like, hey, we're going to try him out as starters. And then we're like, oh, wait, our bullpen's trash. We can't save a game to really save our lives. Um, and then they tried to backtrack and with both uh, Whitlock and Hauk there for a bit. Um, and it didn't really work. And it was kind of a mess. But we actually have a bullpen with a structure that allows Hauk the freedom to do that. And it doesn't really mess, like, mess anything else up. For like the seventh, eighth, and ninth, um, so I think when he's in the bullpen, he's going to be that like Andrew Miller multi-inning super reliever guy, maybe even bridge um, some like seventh and eighth innings uh, to Kenley Jansen if they need to, um, and then kind of have the other guys there, Schreiber and Martin, as, as fallbacks if they they need to get him in there in a pinch, uh, or be that spot starter when inevitably they need a guy to get four starts in a month kind of deal so um either way i like it i like lots of tanner Houck usage well you, you love tanner Houck, and uh, i do one of the things last year that we talked about a lot was you know your belief in him in his third pitch uh the splitter um you know making him an effective starting pitcher do you still think that that's in the cards for him like if if he do you, do you believe that there's a chance he comes out this spring and starts right away and looks really good and is mixing that third pitch in effectively and kind of changes the the tenor of what the plans are for Tanner Houck's future? Yeah. I mean, absolutely I believe that. And, I mean, the evidence is there because that pitch is incredibly effective for him. He just needs to throw it more. Um, we didn't really get the chance last year because he was pulled immediately before uh, – he got, he got anywhere close to that third time through the order. Um, so didn't really get a chance to try and kind of like basically work th- through it or see if that, that was the case. Uh, didn't throw it as often as I'd like. Would like to see it even more, but I also understand that he was kind of going back and forth. So um, that kind of may have affected the usage of the pitch. Um, so try and focus more in on that usage when he is starting versus when he is um, a reliever and hope that when he's starting, he is using all three pitches more. Um, Cause it's really effective for him. It's a really good pitch. So as long as he's throwing it, then yeah, I think, uh, I think it'll work. Yep. And he's another guy that the Red Sox are looking at an extension with right now. So definitely a guy to watch this spring. All right. Uh, Noah song. Uh, who is not in the Red Sox organization anymore. Um, looks like Dave Dombrowski might have gotten one over on old Heim Bloom here. He has reported to Philly's spring training and been transferred to the select reserves for his Navy service. Uh, just a reminder, the Phillies took him in the Rule 5 draft. He was left unprotected by the Red Sox. Song has to stick on the Phillies' 26-man active roster this year, or he will be sent back to the Red Sox. He can be traded or placed on waivers by the Phillies, but um, you know the same rules apply. He must stay on the 26-man active roster uh, in that case, or he will be returned. 
Um, Bob, I cannot believe we are talking about Noah Song in baseball. Uh, certainly, I wasn't expecting this. Dave Dombrowski must have had some insider information uh, when he made this selection. What are the chances, in your opinion, that Noah Song actually uh, stays on the 26-man roster all season long? Yeah, I mean, this is as complex a situation for so many reasons. And how many times did we see either in print or on podcasts or whatever, any news on Noah Song? And the answer was just no. There's no news on Noah Song for three years. And here he is uh, out of nowhere. And yeah, I I guess going back to the Red Sox, it, they were in a tough situation because they had to add him to the 40-man roster. And you know, there was no news and the Phillies were able to stash him in a, you know, in a way that, um, they weren't really penalized if he didn't come back this season, but now he did. So what are the chances? They are a a contending team. Obviously that was in the world series. He has not pitched above a ball and there is no knowing what kind of shape he's in. If he's still throwing 98, 99, like he was in Olympic games four years ago or whatever that was premier um, 12 tournament yeah the, the, right so the, there's no way of knowing yeah. however he is he's going to be 26 in may so he's also entering his his prime years so it's i mean i can't wait to see what he has but i feel like it's unlikely that he is part of the bullpen having not pitched in three years having not been above a ball at the same time, if he is returned, um, I feel like you would get claimed on waivers by a non-contending team who would roll the dice with a 26 year old before he got all the way back to Boston. Um, I just feel like if, you know, that, that someone would roll the dice if they rolled the dice on so many other names before that in the rule five draft, that, that there are teams that are going to be contending far less than the Phillies are. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting situation. Uh, I know Keaton, you were kind of pissed off when you saw this. Um, what was what was your reaction to this whole thing? I was, but I admit that was an overreaction. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> you're walking it back a little bit. I am. Yeah. Okay. Um, mainly, it's just because it's like, of course, it was Dombo. And you just kind of already see it, him making the team, him having a really nice year, being like a solid reliever, and being really annoyed about it. Um, but I miss the part where he still hasn't thrown a ball. <laughs> and, and Dombrowski took him in the Rule 5 draft, uh, not having seen him throw a baseball. Um, I thought that there had been some workouts and that he had thrown a baseball in the last three years, as as Bob had mentioned, he had not. Um, and I still haven't seen him throw yet because um, there was some quotes today um, from uh, Dombrowski and Song, who both spoke to the media, and Dombrowski admitted that it was a risk. Uh, and he said he has no idea um, when he's finally in uh, baseball shape if he's going to throw 85 or 95, but they thought it was worth the risk. So it seems like he does have a long way to go um, to kind of ramp up. So it feels like the odds are more likely that he's not going to stick. Um, I think Bob is probably right. Someone else will probably take a chance on him just 
given the talent that he had coming in. Um, but yeah, my initial reaction was an overreaction. You weren't happy. I was not. No. Takes a big man to admit that, Keaton. So, good job. I'm proud of you. Thanks, man. Growth. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is a really interesting situation, and uh, he does get 15 extra days, which doesn't really matter. I, I mean, I can't imagine that those 15 extra days to make a decision on this guy are going to really mean a lot, but he does have the whole spring to kind of ramp up again. I wonder if Dombrowski has some like drinking buddies with the Navy like high up. Couldn't you see Dombrowski being like, buddies with a couple admirals or something like someone super high up in the navy could totally see that um yeah i got a guy that says he's been thrown <laughs> yeah exactly like <laughs> i don't know have, have you guys watched the new top gun maverick movie yeah about six times oh it's so good but like i could see dombrowski drinking at like the hard deck or something like that with uh <laughs> A bunch of <laughs> bunch of higher ups in the navy or something, but he's got to have some sort of um, inside track here to to even take this chance on on song. I'm rooting for the guy. Um, I hope his stuff comes back. I wonder if he has been throwing it all. I know that he says he hasn't, but I wonder like he's clearly like in good shape still. So we'll see. I'm just taking uh, a note that rather than. Continuing the Beavis and Butthead reboot, I'm going to put Top Gun ahead of that. So. Please do. It's outstanding. It's so good. All right. I I loved it. All Jake, right. what would uh, Dombrowski's call sign be? Oh, kill shot. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, because he always finishes. It sounds like you're <laughs> casting him for a porno, man. <laughs> That would be money Episode shot. Episode 269. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Oh, God. Great. Good. Good work overall. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, uh, so Jorge Alfaro's visa issues that we were concerned about coming from Colombia are not uh, an issue anymore because he's at camp now. Um, do you guys still think that he is the favorite to make the team over Connor Wong, or are any of you two 
A gentleman leaning towards Connor Wong for that second spot in the catcher situation. Man, yeah, I mean, it feels like um, Alfaro is going to make the team over Wong. Though I feel like Wong's performance was good enough that he should get more of a chance. It feels like they're already kind of boxing him out. Um, I think we liked the Alfaro signing when it happened, just given the depth of the position. Um, and obviously it's like Wong's not going anywhere. He's still there. So it doesn't work out. Then hopefully he'll be right there. But um, I think I'd like to see Wong get some run just because of how he performed last year. Um, but I think that's not going to be the case. And I think Alfaro's going to make the team ahead of him. You think so too, Bob? I do, and I—I I mean, we've—it's a few days that he missed, and he—we've watched clips of him just mashing all winter, so we know he's in shape. Um, we've seen the size of the guy and his bat flips, and you know everything that he was doing in the winter time. So he's been hitting. Um, now they both have some sort of options where Alfaro has an opt out. Um, I think if he's not up, and then Wong has an actual option. Um, and at the same time, he's going to be playing uh, for Columbia, so he's going to be playing meaningful games throughout March. So I, I don't think it's much of a, um, you know, I don't think he's going to be dragging or is really behind on things other than maybe working with the pitching staff. That could be one thing, you know, um, having not been on the team before, as well as a late start, as well as uh, leaving for the World Baseball Classic. So that would be the um the only spot that he could be a little bit behind yeah i think if if one other thing could could factor into that is if uh there really are a number of injuries to the starting pitchers and they have to go to some of that minor league depth like crawford and winkowski and some of those other guys wong has caught those guys quite a bit so that could be another thing uh playing in his favor But I do want to get to the WBC uh, because the Red Sox have a lot of guys who are going to be represented uh, at the WBC. Uh, Nick Pavetta for Team Canada, although he has said uh, as of yesterday that he's going to pull out of that um, because of his recovery from COVID. So it seems like he's probably not going to end up pitching for Team Canada. Uh, Yu Chang, who was committed to pitch for Taiwan or to play for Taiwan, not to pitch, uh, Jorge Alfaro, as we mentioned, from Colombia, Rafael Devers for Dominican Republic, Richard Blyer for Israel, Masataka Yoshida for Japan, uh, Kenley Jansen for the Netherlands, but he says only if they advance to the quarterfinals, which means they'd be playing their games in Miami rather than in Asia. Jaron Duran and Alex Verdugo for Team Mexico, and Kike Hernandez for Puerto Rico. Uh, this tournament begins on March 7th. Um, how do you guys think this impacts the Red Sox, if at all? And are you guys excited to watch the WBC? Uh, let's go with you first, Keaton. I am very excited. Um, I love this. I think it's super fun. And I think um, having these guys playing really competitive games um, early in the season um, just kind of sets them up to have more productive seasons. Um, it's been a while since we had a WBC, uh, so I, and I remember this always being a topic, so I don't remember if there 
actual analytical evidence to prove that. But I feel like David Ortiz always talked about that. Um, when they started with the WBC, he always had really good years. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's just his own anecdotes that I'm remembering and projecting out to everybody else who participates, um, or if that is actually the case. Um, and given a guy like Kike Hernandez, who had a really, really slow start last year, um, I think it'll be really good for him to get off to a hot start this year and being uh, immediately tossed into competitive games and ramping up. Uh, I think it's going to be a good thing for him and a few other players as well. So um, I like it for the players. I like it for just the enjoyment of watching um, baseball from all around these countries. And yeah, I'm a big fan. Meaningful baseball in early March is always good to watch too. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Bob? I like seeing the hitters that are playing in the WBC, and I like not seeing my pitchers in the WBC for injury purposes. And hearing that Nick Pavetta is not going to go, and that Kenley Jansen's only going to go if they advance to the quarterfinals, so I'll be rooting against the Netherlands. Um, so that just leaves Richard Blyer. So whether it's a Red Sox pitcher or anybody that's on my fantasy team, I don't need to see them throwing... 20 to 30 high stress innings before the season even starts. Um, seeing all these hitters, like Keaton mentioned, Kike, that's a good call. Verdugo, Yoshida, Devers, Alfaro, all these guys getting uh, some at bats early. I think it has to be a good thing. Uh, and I'm going to watch the NCAA tournament over the WBC, and I hope you guys aren't offended. I, I like March Madness, but. If, if there's a choice between a random March Madness game or a WBC meaningful game, I'm definitely choosing the baseball game. All right. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> All right. Uh, next uh, thing that we're going to talk about is the John Henry. Wait, real quick. Real quick. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So uh, keeping with uh, or just kind of circling back to the David Ortiz anecdote, 2006 WBC, the very first one. And David Ortiz hits 54 homers. 2013 WBC, obviously the Red Sox win the World Series on the back of a tremendous season from David Ortiz. Mm. So I think there's something to it. All right. Yoshida MVP. MVP ahead of us. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. So John Henry uh, spoke. uh, Well, he didn't speak. He actually refused to speak. Uh, with the press in person, but he did agree to answer some emailed questions from a select few outlets. He answered some questions for the Boston Sports Journal. Uh, He answered some questions for The Athletic. He did not answer questions for the paper he owns, the Boston Globe. Um, But, you know, whatever. Uh, And the anecdotes that we're going to be reading to you are from uh, the Jen McCaffrey uh, article on The Athletic. She says the booing at winter weekend was hard to ignore. Did you recognize that the level of frustration existed from some in the fan base and does it motivate you to do anything differently? And uh, John Henry answered that there is a false narrative surrounding the club. It took hold in 2022. There were even false reports of booing at Fenway Park during the winter classic. I think those factors in losing Xander to San Diego were the biggest factors. Those are the fans that you would believe are least likely to try to shout us down, but it happened. 
did anyone report the standing ovation at the end? And then he goes on to talk about, you know, the great fans at Fenway Park and how um, those are the guys that they work for. Um, this came off to me as just so out of touch and so delusional. Like, first of all, he's going to try and deny that there were fans booing him at Winter Weekend. We all saw the videos. We know that it exists. We know about the, like, confiscated signs, too. Uh, even polite signs like please sign such and such player um and then they got the devers deal done it's just bizarre to me w what is he talking about false narrative do either of you guys have any idea what the hell he's talking about when he says false narrative well you see in the world he lives in in his head um none of that happened so in his inner monologue that narrative everything else that actually happened in the real world uh, is false. It's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah, see, there you go. So is that what happens when you have like $6 billion or whatever? You just... You know, Jake, I'd love to find out. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> $6 billion's a lot, a lot of money to keep track of. I'd get in some terrible habits. <laughs> I think that he's just an... I'm, I'm going to do something that I've never done in my entire life. I'm going to say something nice about Dan Shaughnessy. And he wrote an article after, as you said, they didn't answer any of the Globe's questions. Um, and he described them as careful, canned answers, every single one of them. And where was the, the, the owner who, every time that he spoke prior to the pandemic it seemed like he said something that um, maybe didn't go over too well with the rest of the owners, whether it was barging into Felger and Maz's show 10 years ago and calling them out on things that they were saying, or when he said, maybe I'm not fit to be the principal owner, or four years ago when he said, this year we need to be under the competitive balance tax. And then they've kind of changed their model since that happened and Shaughnessy touched on all of those things and he's not the same owner the same guy anything he's not made himself available in years and now when he does it is through email with responses that I'm sure go through 10 editors before they go out and it just makes me question whether you know he still uh has the same passion or interest or if it is just kind of part of a portfolio at this point and I just I couldn't stand anything in any of those those answers it just was as you said out of touch and did you mention the Bogarts quote no I haven't even gotten there yet I mean I, <laughs> oh, I agree God. with you what it's in the world it's just terrible. I'm sorry if I jumped the gun I know you were still going but that's just my immediate thought. well let's get to the let's get to the rest of it too because I do think that the rest of it is worth talking about and since he said uh, very little here. It's not going to take me long. So essentially, Jen McCaffrey, and I'm just paraphrasing here, uh, asks him, you know, are you guys still in the same tier as teams like the Yankees and Padres and Dodgers and Mets when it comes to investing uh, in the product every year, considering the Red Sox pay the highest you know, ticket prices, Red Sox fans do. And he basically says that, you know, we win championships uh, as, as much or more as those other teams. He says, if you add the championships together for those four clubs, I'm not sure that we would match our total over the last 20 years. So again, sort of touting 
the Red Sox track record rather than looking forward and asking fans to, you know, honor those championships as they don't spend at the levels these other teams are. And then he goes on to say that, uh, however, if you're asking if we are going to now uh, move to $300 million payrolls, the answer is no. So kind of crushing Red Sox fans' dreams uh, to, to spend. She asks again, uh, what do you think could have done differently in negotiations with Bogarts? He gives this really snarky remark. We could have offered 12 years. And um, he talks about the job that Bloom and the front office have done over the past three seasons. And he basically just gives an excuse that we play in a really tough division. And if you play 500 ball, you're going to finish last. So he doesn't really answer the question on Bloom and the front office in fact, he doesn't say a whole lot. The only thing that we really got from these three answers are uh, he's not going to talk about the Bogarts thing, he's not going to spend $300 million, and he wants us all to be thankful and grateful um, that they won four World Series over the time that he's been owner. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's irritating, and um, yeah, he didn't answer anything. He did not. There's not one thing that I took out of that other than he just seems cranky about what people are saying. Um, he doesn't think it's accurate. He's claiming that, I don't know, that they weren't booed, which I don't know why anyone would make that up um, at the at the hockey game. The 12 years comment, that is missing the point entirely. No, you miscalculated it a year ago. I'm sure that you were involved in those negotiations and what you could have done a year ago offering five or six years or something similar to the Trevor story deal. No one said that you should go 12 years. So it's like every point that's being made, he's just throwing some other straw man argument out there that like no one's saying. He seems like a dick. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. He just He's not the same person that he was. And if he is, they're not letting him be that. They're keeping him in a a bubble or something. I mean, where was he for three years? I, I don't understand that. Well, the, I cannot it, believe he didn't talk from the bets trade through the pandemic until the, the winter showcase or whatever the hell that was. Like, what was he doing for those three years? Just eating ice cream? Well, that's exactly it, though. He's he's only there to be present during the times when things are going well. And when he chooses to pursue this strategy of, you know, just trying to sneak into the playoffs and cut payrolls and brings on Bloom, he knows it's not going to be popular. So he's not going to show his face. He's just he comes across as very cowardly in all of this. What what percentage of the things that you hold against Bloom do you think are in fact John Henry's fault, but that he just isn't going to take any of those bullets? I don't like that argument personally. I don't actually. Okay. I don't like the idea of blaming um, this entirely on ownership. I think that John Henry was cognizant that he wanted to change his strategy and he did want to spend less. So he brought in a guy who vehemently believes in the idea of spending less and making these cuts. So I still think it's like a hundred percent Heim Bloom Bloom doing these things. But I think that John Henry knew who he was hiring. But I also think that, you know, should things 
go awry this year that John Henry will not hesitate to throw Haim under the bus and pivot to a different strategy because we've seen oh. him do that time and time again. Totally agree with that last part. Bob, is John Henry a cone guy or is he a ice cream helmet kind of guy? Well, there's a picture of him that pops up now and then, right? Eating ice cream out of a cone. He's a cone I think guy. People use it when they're uh, shitting on him in different articles. So I'm going to go with that. All right. Uh, a couple other quotes here. Um, not from John Henry, though, but uh, Dan Shaughnessy, as we were talking about before, uh, noticed that there were very few fans uh, down at spring training when he was down there. Uh, NBC did a little piece on this, NBC Sports Boston. They counted like nine fans at the field. Uh, do either of you guys think there's anything to that? And is there, in fact, a lack of interest in this team, even anecdotally, like where you guys live, people that you talk to, do you feel like there's a lack of interest in this baseball team? I'll tell you what, guys, here in Chicago, the Red Sox are not the talk of the town. <laughs> and I am stunned. Yeah, I I think there's less interest in this team from my social circles, which means absolutely nothing. But um, I, I don't know. I think two years ago, in 2021, it brought a lot of people back on board. Um, and as I said, it was numerous times I've said that it was just such a uh, energetic young crowd that was in the stadium for so many of those playoff games. And um, I don't know. It is just all of that momentum that they had is gone. And I don't, then there are players that, that those fans were attached to that are gone. So it's just going to, I mean, winning will fix it. Winning will fix it. And if there are playoff games and they are at home and this team wins 90 games and there's a one game playoff or whatever it is, three game playoff at Fenway, people will come back but that seems far-fetched and i just don't i'm not hearing a whole lot of uh of excitement for this team outside of you know us just generally being excited about baseball being here i'm not paying any attention to uh attendance at spring training i don't that doesn't really bother me at all i'll be more concerned yeah, I don't have any nine people for at that. fenway yeah i haven't been down there and i'm not there for truck day nor have i ever been yeah no, I mean, I can't because of my job. I'm a teacher, and, like, I just can't get down there. And, you know, I could go down this for truck this day? week. But, no, for, like, spring training. But, um, I knew it, you know, it, like, there's just no games really happening aside from tomorrow against Northeastern. Um, you know, so I, I just never have done that. Um, I do have family that's going down there in a couple weeks uh, to spring training. So... But I, I tell you yeah. that as a teacher who works with, you know, middle school age kids, um, they do not care at all about baseball um, whatsoever. So, yeah, I definitely feel like that's nothing new that uh, baseball skews old. But, you know, they talk all day about the NFL and about the NHL and the you know NBA and don't say a word about uh baseball soccer way more popular i would say soccer is the second most popular sport uh to football uh for that age group at least really that i work with yeah so it's it's football and football it's football and football that's it the world cup was like a huge deal so definitely 
uh, baseball should be a little concerned about the fan base uh, going forward. Sam Kennedy, though, seems to be feeling the pressure. Uh, he had a couple quotes recently. He said, pressure is definitely on the 2023 Red Sox. A good start in March, not even April, but in March is really important. He says that's been Alex's message this first week of camp. It's just about getting better each and every day and not talking about what's going to happen at the end of the season. Let's get better in spring training. Uh, so what does that tell you at all about the Red Sox and you know the front office what how they're thinking about this upcoming season yeah i think i think that they obviously realize um and acknowledge that last year didn't go the way they wanted um and at least uh you know kennedy and bloom have said the offseason didn't go the way that they wanted either so i think when you're coming off a disappointing season and you don't have exactly the off season you were hoping to have to kind of right that ship that there's just naturally going to be some pressure there. Um, but you can't immediately basically apply all of that pressure to yourself out of the gate. Otherwise you're just doomed to, to stumble all season and you really do kind of have to just, um, as this quote says, just take it, one day at a time. And right now just work on getting, getting better in spring training. Cause I mean, they haven't played a game yet. And if they're already like thinking to themselves, Oh God, if we're X amount of games out after a month, we're screwed. Then in a month, they will be that many games out. <laughs> it's just kind of, it's going to manifest that way. So um, the, the quotes aren't surprising, but I think it's also not surprising that they, acknowledge the situation the team is in um but they also see that they have talent you know we talked about the wide range of outcomes that this team has um and i don't don't think dwelling on the wide range really kind of helps but if you just focus on doing the best that you can then you're more likely to hit kind of one of those uh better outcomes so i think alex cora is a great manager for that for a team in that kind of a position because he is a, a pretty positive focused manager um so i think at least the way everything's going so far which obviously is still early um it's good that they recognize it and i think kind of how their their approach to handling the pressure uh i think makes sense yeah i definitely think it comes off as um being a little bit scared of a bad start but I think they should be for sure. So yeah. in that case, like I, I do like it because it does show some urgency. And I think if the Red Sox are to have one more year where they finish fourth or fifth, there are going to be some like really major changes uh, to this team and the construction of it moving forward and all the people involved. So yeah, I, I totally get the urgency, and I'm happy to see that, but I agree with you. It does put some undue pressure um, on the team. For sure. All right, let's get to a couple polls. Um, you know, the Athletic is just doing amazing work over there, and Jason Stark had a couple spring training polls uh, that he put out that polled 29 executives uh they were either former executives coaches or scouts uh and they went through and they ranked uh 
a bunch of different things, but most irreplaceable player who changed teams, least improved teams, and worst free agent signings, and person who is under the most pressure uh, for this upcoming season. And uh, the Red Sox factored into all of these things. So, uh, first of all, <laughs> about Xander Bogarts. Uh, he ranked as the most irreplaceable player who changed teams. Some quotes here. Uh, he was their guy, so that's a tough pill to swallow. It's like losing John Lester. You don't replace what guys like that mean to a team. That's a tough one. And then the other quote here is, I love Trey Turner, but losing Bogarts affects Boston more than losing Turner affects the Dodgers. It's not just about the player. The Dodgers have built up more goodwill with their fan base. Hell yeah, that's true. Uh, over these last few years than the Red Sox. And when you're in the place that the Red Sox are with their fan base and you let a guy like that leave, it's not just about replacing the player on the field. It's impossible to replace what he means to those fans. Preach! I loved both of those quotes um, because we did talk about how much it did hurt in the way that the Lester thing hurt and they screwed it up like the Lester thing. But I also liked the comparison there to Trey Turner and specifically what it meant to losing him at this specific time for this club. Yeah. And it, it's um, interesting, I guess, to, to see that uh, executives on other teams saw that and could easily identify this, but it seems like the executives on the team that he played for couldn't, <laughs> or at least valued it differently. It's just uh, baffling, but unsurprising. Yeah, that's the part that really made me angry, um, was exactly what you just said. Like, if, if other teams, scouts, coaches players, whatever, executives are looking at this and saying that, which is exactly what we've been saying, like, the Red Sox have to know all this, right? Like, they just don't yeah. care, right? That's the only the only option is they just don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or, or not that they didn't care, but they just, they didn't value it the way that other teams or the fans valued it. Which kind of makes it more frustrating, right? That they recognize it, but they're just like, you know, this doesn't mean that much to us. Yeah, it's annoying. Very annoying. Um, Sox also made the list of least improved teams in the American League. Uh, they received 11 votes, which was fourth most behind the Tigers, the A's, and the White Sox in terms of doing the least to improve their roster. Uh, in terms of worst free agent signing, they led the way with 10 votes for Masataki Yoshida. And uh, Kenley Jansen also received four votes on this list. So they had two players on the list. Uh, and there was also a quote here about Yoshida uh, from one of the executives. It said, uh, Boston's five-year $90 million signing of Yoshida felt like more of a commentary on the team than either the player or the contract. One voter's review was the $105 million, including the posting fee, really. And here's another. I don't like that one, especially considering the team it came from. You mean that's where you're going to extend her yourself. That's a head-scratcher. And I think they're talking about like them choosing to extend themselves to get uh, you know, Yoshida instead of giving that money to Bogarts. 
uh, adding that on to any possible deal uh, that you could have offered him. And, and we talked about that on the podcast too, when Bogarts left, like, you know, you, you could have conceivably done both of these things. Um, so I don't know. How, how did you think about that? Cause I'm actually really excited about Yoshida. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I love Yoshida, but I also do agree. Like if you have a pot of money, um, you need to make sure more of that pot is going towards Bogarts. Yeah. I mean, no doubt you could have done both. And um, I, I was the positive one about um, Yoshida and was actually happy that they did spend money, even if it seemed like an overspend. It's really easy to do that with the international guys because it's a blind bid. So you have no idea um, what you're bidding against. You have There's nothing else to compare it to. You're not like talking to an agent actually like discussing having like negotiations it's just it's a you got one shot and if that's the guy you want then you got to overspend for it so I, I don't fault bloom for doing that they needed an outfielder and somebody who could hit at the top of the order or in the middle of the order wherever they're gonna however they're gonna end up using him um so he fit holes that they had and they they went and they got him i have no problem with them doing that but then coupled with i mean it they happened at like the exact same time um, them like wholly lowballing Bogarts, absolutely biffing it, and then him going to San Diego when you could have just done both and locked him up, locked Bogarts up, and we're talking about a real happy off season. It it makes it look a lot more like a head scratcher, I think, than it would have been had they just retained Bogarts as well, which they absolutely had the means to do so. Yeah, I agree. And I, one of the things that I hate the most is when people talk about like, uh, how just about how John Henry tried to redirect it. Like we could have gone 12 years. It's just not the point, man. It's, it's not the 11 year, $280 million that we were clamoring for you to spend. The Red Sox should have never let it get to the point where, yeah, you know, they had to go 12 years and $290 million to keep them. You know, they they should have made a strong offer in the spring. So we're, we're, we're not going to beat that dead horse anymore. Um, but lastly, uh, they were asked uh, about who's on the hot seat. And uh, Heim Bloom received the most votes. Uh, it says Heim Bloom slash the Red Sox front office, 20 votes. It said pretty much everyone in baseball likes Heim Bloom, the beleaguered chief baseball officer of the Red Sox. But when a guy rakes in this many votes in a survey like this, we think it's safe to say this isn't going well. The fan base is in rebellion, at least the rational fans. There's still the Bluminati out there. Uh, the rest of the industry is generally confused about why a money-making machine like the Red Sox would lowball a local hero like Bogarts and then turn around and overpay an unknown quantity like Yoshida. But the conclusions were the same. If this team doesn't win, uh-oh. Uh, here's his problem, said one voter of Bloom. When principal owner John Henry is feeling the heat and Tom Warner is feeling the heat, they throw anybody under the bus. Is that the most accurate quote in the world or what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's uh, things better go well. I, I just don't like the chances of Bloom and Co. to uh, survive this year uh, intact with a job, but we'll see. Hopefully I'm wrong. 
Let's get to some listener questions here. We have a couple uh, listener questions, and then we have a couple email questions that we'll get to as well. The first one comes from the Pat. He says, sunbathing first baseman, yay or nay? I say yay. Yeah, I say yay too. Why not? Get your raise. Uh, Alex Broad has our next question. He says, who do you think will exceed expectations and who will disappoint this season? This is a great question. Um, exceed expectations. Man, this one's tough. Um, do you do you have answers right away for this? I do. Um, I think you, you go first. Masataki Yoshida will exceed expectations this year. Um, I'm very bullish on him. I do think that the Red Sox probably spent more than they had to to get Yoshida, but I don't really care because it's not my money. Um, I am a believer in the skills that he brings to the table. I think that his uh, numbers are going to be a lot closer to the very favorable projections that like 300, 380, you know, high four slugging percentage projection. I think he's going to be exactly what this team needs. So I'm a huge Yoshida fan, and I think fans are going to quickly fall in love uh, with what he's going to bring to the table. I'm going to go with Verdugo. And it seems like a little bit of a a hedge, given that basically what he's staring down the barrel. But he has the, the kind of attitude and the mindset to step up and have finally that breakout season when it matters most. Um for him, so I feel like he's going to exceed expectations and disappoint um, Monacy. Mm. I suppose I hadn't even thought about Mondesi for the disappointment because I never expected anything from him. Um, I've always been a Mondesi hater. Same. Um, yeah, but I know. There are those know. that love him, and he always disappoints. <laughs> I'm going to say. Ah, uh, man. I'm kind of throwing myself under the bus with this one, so I can't say that one. I was going to say Justin Turner, but we have our bet where I'm bullish on Justin Turner. <laughs> yeah, <that's> um, right. <laughs> so I can't say that. Uh, I think it's possible because of his age that he'll be the one, but I'm going to say Adam Duvall is actually the guy that disappoints a lot of people. Um, I think people are expecting to get that huge power version of uh Adam Duvall, but I think what we actually might get this year from him is, you know, passable defense in center field that takes away a lot from what he can do at the plate um, with an incredibly high strikeout rate and a very low OBP. So I think that Adam Duvall might strike out in a lot of big spots this year and really frustrate the hell out of fans all season long. Great. Looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> next one comes from Lurchimus, who I uh, affectionately called Lurchimonious last time. Um, and he says, is there still a chance that they... Uh, I think Here, let me try this again. I still think there's a chance they sneak a division title. Sorry, at Def Jake. For the optimism, which outfielder do y'all think has the most pressure to perform this year? Happy official baseball season. Thank you for the question, and thank you for the optimism and the shout-out. Uh, who do you think 
has the most pressure to perform in the outfield this year, Keaton? This is a great question. Because as we were discussing prior to recording, um, we had this question like an hour before we started recording, and I had already changed my answer like three times. Um, Because I really feel like all of them feel pressure. And you could even include uh, Kike Hernandez in that too um, as well. Uh, but I'm going to go with Verdugo again, and I think he's going to do well with it. Um, he came to this team with very unrealistic expectations given who he was replacing. Um, he has struggled at times to just kind of be himself and perform. Uh, he had a really frustrating year last year, but um, the peripherals were there. He was hammering the ball. He just had a whole bunch of bad luck. Um, it eventually started turning around a little bit. Um, he had some nice spurts there in the second half. Um, and knowing that he's staring down potential payday now um, with or um, kind of, well, hopefully with uh, the Red Sox there. Uh, or at whatever position it ends up being um, with the Red Sox, I I think he's feeling it the most because um, he didn't have the year last year that he wanted. I mean, we were on like year four of waiting for the Verdugo breakout, right? And last year we really thought it was going to happen and then everybody yeah. just really disappointed. <laughs> I thought I it was like... going to happen. I convinced myself in April it was the breakout season. Yeah. It just it really felt that way, yeah. and then um, you know he was really feeling himself coming into the year, uh, and it just it just the, the season in general when it just kind of started out slow, it just felt like it kind of built, and then he he was legitimately having bad luck on top of that, which just kind of made it even more frustrating. Um, so you can imagine just him really wanted to put that behind him, um, and then go out there and get a big fat extension, and kind of you know put himself out there he's been like constantly mentioned in trade talks too which i'm sure is really frustrating so um whether that ends up happening again whatever position the red Sox are in come the trade deadline he's probably going to be a name that comes up again um and for better or worse you know he's, he's going to want to be performing well at the time so i just feel like it's it's probably verdugo just based on like the built-up frustrations um but I think he has the attitude and mindset to kind of like use that to fuel him. Yeah. I think it will finally happen. I couldn't agree more. I think you nailed it. Um, And all the reasons you said, I actually think that if a breakout is going to happen, this is going to be the year that it is going to happen, especially after the call out from Alex Cora as well. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, especially because you know, Yoshida already got paid, and Adam Duvall is in the twilight of his career. Uh, Verdugo is legitimately playing for his next and perhaps only big contract. So um, yeah. he has to has to play well. Um, there were a couple of other questions. I'll answer those on Twitter because uh, we don't have time for them. But we did have a couple email questions as well from Vincent. Uh, and he says, is there a way that the Bloom front office could give fans a clearer picture of their vision regarding signings and overall budget choices? Uh, is their model similar to the Astros? 
Um, why do they feel potentially necessary action of overpaying to win is not necessary when the over 04, 07, and 13, and 18 rings had multiple well-paid stars, whereas uh, now we have one? Um, and he also says that he attended Winter Weekend. Uh, he did feel that Bloom made an earnest effort to respond with some integrity and passion on Friday evening, uh, and here's his concern. He says, as a passionate fans intelligent fans who know the game uh, why are we not included in some way with regard to decisions that's an interesting question um, and he says that uh, sort of talking about some of the mid-level guys that they signed in low-cost question marks uh, rather than you know going in big on stars but overall I think you know questioning the financial choices, of this team. And, and my first thought here when I read this question, these questions from Vincent was the playoff structure of baseball and how that's changed going back to, you know, 04 and 07 and, and 13. Um, you know, the, the expansion of the playoffs and that more teams make it in the barrier to make the playoffs is lower now. Um, I think that that's a big reason why people, teams, uh, not just the Red Sox are not going all in to build these juggernaut teams because they've sort of in, de-incentivized um, building great teams like that because there's a, there's a whole bevy of evidence that shows that once you get to the playoffs, you know, it's everybody has a bit of a puncher's chance. Uh, so that's my my first thought. I don't know. What do you think about these these questions, Keaton? I hadn't thought about that um, playoffs effect. That is interesting. Um, I think, I mean, with regards to the fans, like I don't feel like I, fans need to be included in the decision-making, but I just feel like the front office owes us a really kind of like to the, to the first point of the email, of like what is the direction of the team? Because we we keep being told that um, they're gonna, they're not afraid to spend money. They want to spend money, and they want to build a team to compete every season. And while I I don't doubt the latter part, um, their actions don't align with either statement so i don't it's one of those things where it's like i don't we feel because we are intelligent fans um we don't understand the direction of the team we don't know what they're trying to do uh, and it just feels like they're just trying to play off the good especially with these co the comments from john henry uh, it just feels like they're just trying to play off of the goodwill of the last 20 years and be like i mean we can do kind of whatever we want and just be happy that we won titles in the past yeah um which is nuts, and we should still have the ability to be critical of a team that we feel is is making weird decisions or kind of confusing decisions or, or changing their plan. I just want to know what the direction of the team is, what the plan is, and then like if they just come out from the beginning and been like, "Hey, we're gonna like our we got our title, that was our goal. We have a really expensive roster. Now our." vision and plan for the team is to slash a bunch of payroll uh, and build something like 
the Astros, Braves, and Dodgers. But it's going to take a bit to do that because we have to develop a whole bunch of guys in the farm. So there's going to be some rocky transition years. We've been like, okay, great. We understand. Yeah, they're and just poor communicators, off. though. They're just yeah. like, they're not good at relaying messages in a way that would make them palatable to the fans. So I think like in John Henry's case, he just chooses not to speak. And when he does speak, it doesn't come out right. So, right. But there is some precedent to the idea of fans having decision-making power. I I know, particularly in European soccer, there are some clubs like, um, I believe Barcelona is one of these clubs where the fans sort of all own it and they spend all of their their club's revenue on the team. But, you know, that's not really the model for American professional sports. And also I know that that has gotten some of those big soccer clubs in bankruptcy trouble. Like I know that a bunch of these big clubs have declared bankruptcy and come back from bankruptcy several times as well. I'm sure you'd know a little bit more about this keaton but you know i I just think that the american model is so radically different that fans are never really going to have any sort of choice yeah that is interesting um i am unfamiliar with the barcelona thing but uh as i'm a Bayern munich fan i'm very familiar with bundesliga and they have a uh, 50 plus one rule um which is that like no single person or entity can be a majority shareholder um and basically like 51 percent of the team needs to be owned by the fans uh which is why when it comes to like spending and the transfer windows um they're always behind but makes for a more competitive and exciting league fight me um (laughs) so there's certainly advantages to it and i think um there's just no way that any kind of structure like that can be put in place given general capitalism in this country. Yeah. It's it's like, it's too radical of a change. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And there's not even any like sort of incentives for teams to actually spend, you know, there's no sort of relegation or real penalties. Like teams like the pirates, they just get dragged along from this money making machine. It's just, as long as you can pay the price of entry, uh, you have a money making machine in a major league franchise so it's yeah. uh it's quite a crappy situation in fact for uh creating a a good league but you know in in regards to his last point with the the players i think that's been the biggest criticism here is just that you know there is one star in rafael devers on this team and they're building and they have been building during bloom's time this roster that sort of flips every year like the Tampa Bay roster and and that just doesn't really play in a market like Boston where you're selling so many jerseys and people care so much about the individual players it's just uh it's not the right approach for this market and hopefully they'll eventually realize that all right well we've gone over an hour and a half so that is our show tonight we do hope you enjoyed the episode 269 uh very nice episode for you here um Keaton, anything before we uh, we log off? Anything you want to say to to the people? Uh, yeah, just shout out to Vincent for the questions. Uh, very detailed, deep, thoughtful questions. Appreciate it. Yeah, those were great. Um, as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter. You can follow Keaton at the Spoken Keats. 
can follow me at at Jake, and you can email us at redseatpodcast at gmail.com. So thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll be with you again in a couple weeks. Yeah.